Morning, everybody. My name is Tim Porter, one of the pastors here for Faith Community. Thank you so much for joining us in the room. It's good to hear you singing, and it's great to join my voice with yours as we sing together to who God is and Graves into Gardens. Man, I love that song. Um, what God can do uh, online. Thanks so much for joining us as well this morning from wherever you are uh, to be here with us. We are in this series called I Am Not Myself, and uh, we've talked about the subtext or the subtitle of the series being about sexual identity, gender identity, and transgenderism and what it means to follow Jesus in our cultural moment. Um, now, Tim Prince is one of our, he's our teaching pastor, and he is trying to hold the record for the longest introduction to a sermon ever, and uh, not to be outdone. Um, I am going to try to at least match him for the introduction. So if you're wondering, are we going to get to a passage today? Yes, we are. Um, and, uh, but I need to say a few things just um, to set up what we're going to be talking about today. And so the sermons are going to be a little bit different as we go through this series because we're doing something a little bit different. And so the Bible's still the basis of everything we're doing. We're going to walk through a passage together, but there's a few things. Each sermon's going to be just a little bit different than what we might be used to, uh, and that's okay. Um, why this series? Why right now? Um, just want to remind us something that Tim said last week is why this series, why right now, is not because this is an issue. It's because we're talking about people. We're talking about people in relationship to God, people who are made in the image of God. So this is not an issue series. This is about people, about us as human beings. Next week, Tim's gonna talk a little bit more about how this became politicized and what does that look like for us to live in it, but this is not an issue. It's about people. Gender incongruence, gender dysphoria is a real experience that human beings have. And we, of all people, Christians, should be the most compassionate and generous in spirit when someone tells us that they are experiencing gender incongruence. Reason being is that we know what it's like to be broken. We know what it's like to be broken. Every human being is broken, down to the core in us. And we also, if we reflect a little bit, we all experience some kind of incongruence with our bodies. Last month, uh, Pat Stream, our counseling pastor, asked a question. He asked like three questions whenever you have a certain kind of staff luncheon, just to get us talking and sharing. And he asked this question, how old were you when you felt like you were old? Now that's, that's a fun question. Like it brought up a bunch of different stories that we're all telling, but notice how the question is set up. Tell me, when, how old were you, or when did you feel like you were old? Old isn't an emotion. Old is a temporal category, but there is also this reality that we feel young or we feel old. How many 50-somethings still feel like 20? Seriously, there's a, like, when I go to see my alma mater play, when I go to football games or college football games, like, I could still go down there and I could throw some people around. <laughs> One play. <laughs> One play, right? But there's, a, there's, a, there's an incongruence between what I feel, how I perceive myself, and at the same time, what is really true. I'm 51. I can't do the same things I could do when I was 20. 
Now that's a reality, and, 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 and we, we experience that in a lot of different places, in a lot of different ways. Those of you who have ever experienced a panic attack, you know what it's like to have your body betray you. you. You're like in this normal situation and everything's going fine and things are calm and all of a sudden you get this panic attack where you feel like you're going to die. Well, what's going on? Your body's remembering the trauma that you experienced at some other point in time. Your inside, your you, you are feeling out of control. Your body is betraying you. This this kind of incongruence becomes even more painful when we start talking about sexuality. Last year, I went on a run. If you were here for last year, or you were on a, yeah, sure. I, I went to do something I do every, almost three times a week. I go for a run with my dog, Charlie. And I passed out for the first time ever. I felt like my body betrayed me. It did. Turns out I need water, okay? But when we start to, that, that was painful, and, it, and I've struggled with anxiety, like, is my body going to give up on me again? It's taken me months to overcome that. Now, when we start talking about sexuality, and that something is so personal to us as our sexuality, and I feel like I am somebody different than my biological sex. Anxiety, pain, confusion, very real. And again, one of our values as a church is to be generous in spirit. When people show us their sin or their suffering, we seek to understand. I'm going to say something more about this in a few minutes, but you know, we live in a unique time. And one of the reasons why we're talking about this series right here right now is we live in a unique time in which the messages and ideas and actually the very default way we talk about personhood, that we need to figure out who we are. We gotta figure out our own gender. And being human, it creates so much pressure, so much confusion, so much pain, so much division, and potentially so much irreversible consequences in this life. A person who may have experienced an orgasm before they went to, through gender reassignment surgery Never experience an orgasm again. And Jesus brings good news into the confusion and into the pain. And I have a conviction that we as followers of Jesus not only have a challenge in front of us, but an opportunity and a duty. A duty to bring Jesus' clarifying good news into our world, especially as it relates to our bodies and our sexuality. Jesus has things to say that our world, that I, me personally, need to hear. And one, of my, one of my hopes, this is just one of my hopes for us as a church and as followers of Jesus, is that the more that we encounter Jesus working in our lives in real, tangible, personal, specific brokenness to healing kind of ways. We become like the woman at the well in John 4 that runs out to her village and says, after leaving her water jar behind, runs into her village and said, come meet the man who showed me everything I ever did. Because she experienced in that moment, Jesus knew everything about her 
all of her past, and he wanted a relationship with her where he was the living water that she was really looking for. The other part I want to uh, highlight is, and again, we're going to come back to this in a little bit more in this series and in this sermon, is that Jesus came with good news. He says that the devil came to steal, kill, and destroy, but in John 10, 10, he says, I came that, we may, that you may have life and have it abundantly. And he came to have the, so that we could know the good news about who he is, what he has done, how he's made us, how he is changing us. And that good news becomes a real dynamic in our lives. And Jesus has good news to say to our sexuality and to our bodies that we can be discipled into. That's really important, even if the good news is hard at times to hear at first. Now, behind everything that Jesus says and everything, everything that Jesus does and everything that, every truth that Jesus says, uh, teaches is this historical reality that Jesus lived as a human being. He died as a human being, God-man as a human being, and the body that died was tenderly placed into a tomb and that body has come back to life again and Jesus right now is embodied in heaven forever. And the fact that he took on a body should speak and does speak volumes to what it means to be a human being and God's love for you and me as a body, a human being with a body. Now that conviction needs to dig really far into our hearts, okay? And the reason why I say this is because this is something I mentioned at Christianity Explored. If you've been at Christianity Explored, you've known, you've heard me talk this way before, is that if Jesus rose from the dead, we should listen to everything that he has to say because it's true and it's good and we know what he went through to teach us and to save us. And if he rose from the dead, then it doesn't matter how I first hear the good news, if it's hard or it makes me sad, I care about what Jesus says because he's Lord and he proved it because he's alive. But if he didn't rise from the dead, I don't care what he has to say and neither should you. He's just one more opinion out there that we could choose from. But if he did rise from the dead, he really is Lord. And his opinion, his views, his good news is more true than anything else in the world. And what we should really care about is not what other people think, not what political parties think. What does Jesus think? Because he's my Lord. And Jesus, at times, gives all of us hard things to do in relationship to the good news that he brings. Jesus once interacted with what we've called the rich young ruler, very wealthy, very moral, very popular, had power. And the good news of Jesus to that man was, sell everything that you own and give it away. And the man walked away sad because he was very rich. But Jesus 
call was good news because Jesus knew that that man was enslaved to his money and it wouldn't save him. But he had to give it all away. And that was good news. So as we talk about sexuality and as we talk about gender incongruence and gender dysphoria, there are brothers and sisters in Christ that are gonna hear this as really hard news. Remember what it's like to hear good hard news from Jesus to you so that we can have compassion and be generous in spirit as we walk together in these things. So three movements today. Good news for our bodies, good news for our sexuality, and good news for our failures. And there's a part you might be wondering, like, man, you keep talking about good news. You don't seem like it seems really good to you. It is really good, but I also know that this is sensitive, and so, like, I would love to announce this with great joy, but there's also a part where it's like, there's a tenderness here, just, you know, so if I'm subdued, it's because I want to represent Jesus well. Good news for our bodies, good news for our sexuality, good news for our failures. We're looking at page 954 in the Bible's in front of you, and it's also found in, it's also 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 20. And it'll be on the screens as well if you want to do there. A couple things as we go in. Um, this series is like foundation laying, so there's not a lot of like major practical application. Like, what does it look like for me right here, right now, in this relationship, okay? Uh, we're trying to lay a foundation so it stays a little bit conceptual and that kind of way. Uh, but we got to get down to the details. We got to get down into the day-to-day. And we have a resource page. You can hit the QR code and you can go to that. But then also we have two resources that I want to highly recommend um, that have really helped me with this talk as I've wrestled with the Bible. One is by a man named Sam Albury, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies. You can pick that up at our cafe. It's also on the resource list as well. And then this other one, um, that my wife discovered uh, some time ago uh, through a podcast uh, called Java with Julie, and it's linked on the resource page as well. Super, super, super helpful. Uh, but this is a book called God's Sex in Your Marriage. We, uh, from here on out, until another resource is better, my wife and I have determined that whenever we give, we do premarital counseling, we give this book out um, because it's tells, it helps us tell the story of God's good news for sexuality and what does it mean to be discipled sexually so that we can experience as much as possible given our bodies and our time and all that kind of stuff, all that God has for us. So those are, that's out in the cafe area as well. Okay, the text. Verse nine, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That pretty much includes all of us. And such, Paul says, amazing news, and such for some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up with his power, by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. 
but he is joined to the Lord, becomes one spirit with him. Free, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I don't know if you're wondering, like, why are we looking at this passage right here, right now? And the reason why we're looking at this passage right here, right now, is that this passage has a lot to say to us as followers of Jesus in some of the things that we're going through right now. Paul is teaching the Corinthians about something really important that they have either not filtered through, that it is crucial, that they've either not filtered through the gospel or they've added to the gospel, and then is this idea that the body is not that important. And what we do with our bodies is not that important. What really matters is the real you, which is your internal you, your soul. That's what really matters. And Paul says, no. Now how that started to get worked out in Corinth is, we can see it in verse 13 where, and in some other places in the section where there's quotation marks, these are these quotation marks, See, it, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. That's a quotation mark. There's other ones in verse 12 and others like, all things are lawful for me and all things are lawful for me. And what, what Paul's doing here is then his correspondence with this church is that at times he's taking questions that they have and he's responding to those questions. But at other times he is taking slogans that they live by and he's critiquing them because there's a partial truth to the slogan but it needs to be brought into the gospel and changed by the gospel. And one of the slogans that they lived by was this, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. There's no quotation marks in the Greek text and it's very possible just so you know that the quotation could actually be extended through the end of the sentence. I would argue that way. And so here would be the full thought. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. Now what they meant by that is that if, if, my, if I have my body, I have a stomach for my body and that stomach is for food, God eventually is going to destroy my body because I'm going to die someday and food's going to be destroyed as well eventually someday. This whole way in which we are nourishing ourselves is going to come to an end for me. So what I eat doesn't matter because the body doesn't matter. Because what I do with my body is no big deal because what Jesus cares about is my soul. Now they took that idea and applied it to sex because of an appetite. I have a hunger, I have, a, I have an organ for food and that's gonna be destroyed. Doesn't matter what I eat. Sexuality, sexuality is, a, is an appetite as well. I have desires as a human being because I have sexual organs as a human being and I'm just gonna satisfy those in any way that I choose because the body doesn't matter. And so what they would do as followers of Jesus, thinking they were honoring Jesus and Jesus' value of the soul is going, I'm gonna go down to the local brothel and I'm going to hire a time with a prostitute. And Jesus is happy with that because Jesus doesn't care about the body. It's gonna die anyway. It's just physical. Now that overlaps, that idea is similar to what we have in our cultural context. The body isn't that big of a deal. 
You were assigned a biology when you were born, but you can change that because the body doesn't matter. What really matters is the real you, which is your internal. And so the, the arc of a human being is to figure out who the real you is and then start to live out that real you. And if you don't live out that real you, you try to hide it, all calamity breaks out, and nothing good in life really happens. So you figure out the real you, and everybody accepts who the real you is. Can you hear the song, Let It Go? That's the arc of Frozen. Now, Tim Prince talked about this last week, and this is helpful to know why and how we got here. This idea emerged with the, with the romantics. Not the band. What I like about you, you know, okay. Not the band, but the philosophical movement. And so, any of you who went, had a liberal arts education, uh, you should email your professor, your philosophy professor, and your psychology professor, because they told you that these things would matter, and you did not believe them. But it does matter. The Romantics were a reaction against the Enlightenment. If you ever wonder, like, what, okay, I'm having trouble figuring out what the Romantics believe, watch the movie Dead Poet Society. Mr. Keating is a transcendental Romantic, rebelling against the Enlightenment and the light of knowledge at the institution where he teaches. Now, the Romantics said, look inside. Look inside to find the real you. Tim talked about that last week. I'm not going to rehash it. But what has happened over the years is that a certain um, neurologist named Sigmund Freud, who is an Austrian Romantic, did two really important things with that philosophy. The first is he made the real you is the sexual you. In other words, he took that the real you is now, what, what you really need to pay attention to to figure out who you really are is you have to pig, figure out what your desires, what your sexual desires are. What your sexual desires are. And that is significant for understanding what we are doing or why we are talking about this here. It's like before Freud, and you can see this in the biblical text, before Freud, sex was something you did. With Freud, sex became something you are. It's from this idea that as we experience sexual attractions, our sexual attractions define us. And from this idea, we have heterosexual, bisexual, lesbian, gay, gender identity, gender expression, assigned sex, physical attraction, emotional attraction, the gender unicorn. Because sex is no longer about something you do, it's now who you are. I'll give an example. One woman tells a story about what happened to her in her relationship with her lesbian partner. She, they were, she was in a lesbian partner. She looked in and she started to realize that she um, desired a relationship and was sexually attracted to another woman, biologically another woman, okay? Or a biological woman. She was in a relationship with this woman for many years, and then eventually her partner started to look inside, say, ah, I might be, I'm, I've got some masculine tendencies. I might be a man. And so she went on the journey of trying to transition to being a man. 
went through the hormone treatment, went through surgery, all that kind of stuff. Now, the original partner is experiencing a great deal of confusion because she's asking the question, who am I now? Am I, because I'm married to a person who is a male, though biologically female, What am I? Am I bisexual? Am I heterosexual? Who am I? And that's the big question that comes up. Who am I? Because our sexual orientation, or even that phrase, sexual orientation, has a defining element to it about our real you. Okay? That's what's going, that's one of the dynamics that's going on in our culture. We've move to such a degree that right now, many people are saying, this is who I am right now. I'm bisexual right now. That might change next year, I don't know. That was a Freudian move. The other, and it has had damaging consequences, the other move that Freud make, made is to say that the only, as he looked at human beings, and this is how uh, sex became politicized at its core, as, it's, as you look at human beings, what's the core element of all human beings? We all want to be happy. And he said, if our true self is a sexual self, the only way that actually we can be happy as human beings is to be able to express our sexuality the way that we are, the way that we are. And so, for Freud, you will not be happy unless you're having sex in the way that you want to have sex with whom you want to have sex. Now, that's a simplification, but it's really important to understand why, how we got to where we are. It's simplistic, I know that, and there's a lot of other dynamics, but one of the reasons why Tim and I are telling this story in each one of our sermons is because we're dealing with the fruit of ideas that have been laid as a foundation for hundreds of years for Western culture. And what that means is, this isn't changing anytime soon. And what that means is, is that we as followers of Jesus get to rise up to the opportunity that we have as to rediscover Jesus' good news for our bodies, which are, there, there's even some truths that we've not even thought about for some time because we've not had the opportunity to have to think about them. And Jesus has good news to say to us as individuals right here in our time and our place about our bodies and about our sexuality and about our failures. So first, good news about our bodies. Verse 14, Paul makes this amazing statement. And God raised the Lord and he will also raise us up by his power. What Paul means is that if God raised Jesus from the dead, the body that died went into the ground, when the tomb came back out, that real body was transformed just as God did that, to Jesus, he will do that to anyone and everyone who belongs to Jesus, who gives their life to Jesus. Now, it's really good news to know, as the Bible teaches, that as a follower of Jesus, when you die, your body goes into the ground, your spirit, your soul, goes to be with Jesus. 
And Paul says that that is better than what we have now. But that's not the end for which God sent Jesus to die and rise again. The hope, the big promise, the work that Jesus still has to do is when he returns, he's going to raise us up from the dead as well. The body that you have right now, if Jesus doesn't return before you die, will go into the ground in some form or fashion. And Jesus promises that when, you re when he returns, he's going to reanimate your body. He's going to put you back together again, and you will have a body like his that he has right now. Now, that's the grand hope. Now, what this means is that our bodies are not inconsequential. That our bodies matter. That God loves you, and you are an embodied person. He loves your body. Jesus loves your body so much that he's willing to go through death and back to bring it back to life again. Why? Because he made it. He made you. The Bible talks about how you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, we need to rediscover, because we have some of these tendencies in the church that, oh, what really matters is the spiritual, what really matters is the soul. Paul says, no. What really matters is a human being, body and soul, united together, and the only thing that separates us is death. And then Jesus brings us back together again, transformed, 2.0, times a billion. Because they're transformed. Now, we got to really believe that. Because right now, it's like, oh, that's just sort of your theory. Blah, 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 blah. No, that's, that's like really true. And if we really believe that, it starts to make us really look at our own bodies and say that your body is you. Try to live without your body for a while. Your body is you. Now, you are more than your body. You have a soul, but you are your body. Now, you also have a body, so you can donate a kidney, and you're not giving you away. But still, you are your body. Do you look at yourself that way? That you are fearfully and wonderfully made. This is good news to reintroduce to us. It goes all the way back to Genesis at the beginning of time. Genesis 1.27, we read this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's so important to read that God didn't make some kind of soulish creature named Adam and then look around and go, uh, I gotta find something to put this in. And then he makes like some kind of Tupperware container made of human being or of a body and then he puts this soul in this human being. That's not what God did. He started with dirt. He started with matter. You are more body than you are soul, maybe, I don't know. Your body matters. God loves it. You are your body, and your body is fearfully and wonderfully made, and being embodied is a fundamental part of what makes us human beings. You cannot be you without a body. You cannot be you without your body. Now think about that with self-image. 
pieces that we all experience. There are parts of my body that I wish I could deal away with. And Jesus' good news is, Tim, I made your body. I died to save your body. Your body's precious to me because you're precious to me. Now this also matters because as you look in Genesis 1, God's creating binaries all over the place. There's darkness and light, sky then earth, water then land. And then he creates human beings. And even though plants multiply and reproduce, even though animals multiply and reproduce, God says something very distinct about human beings made in his image, that we are created male and female as a binary. My dog, and I don't mean this as joking around, I'm just serious, my dog does not sit around wondering Dog's wonderful, Charlie. He doesn't sit around wondering what, what his sexuality is. But as a human being, we do because we're made in God's image. And there's something about maleness that goes all the way down from, it's our physical and our internal are intimately linked together. Intimately linked together. Now what this means is that Christianity is actually the most body positive religion out there. But what this also means is that God is really clear about things and we need to rediscover this because it's good news that your genitals, your genitals have meaning, not just purpose. A penis has meaning, a vagina has meaning. Because God made us as embodied people, male and female. So important to see. And so the good news, one of the good news statements that we can make into our current context is that you don't have to figure out your gender. You don't have to look inside and figure out who you're attracted to or figure out what, what, what you really are. God has already told you in your biology in your genitals, they have meaning, explanatory power that God invested them with. Now the Bible also talks about how we're broken and so it's, there's, such a, there's such a thing as intersex. A person born biologically, not sure male or female. All because we're broken, the world's broken. We can also say that the world's broken in such a way that of course someone's going to experience some kind of gender incongruence and gender dysphoria. Of course. If our sexuality is not only body but also part of who we are as individuals all the way down, of course there's going to be some kind of brokenness there. But that doesn't lead to slurs and mocking. It leads to compassion if we're followers of Jesus. Generosity of spirit. This is why the Lord has come, to raise our bodies and make us whole. Verse 13, the body's not made for sexual immorality. Why? It's made for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The Lord, our Lord Jesus is for our bodies. He cares about our bodies. He will raise us up. Because Jesus took on flesh, one author writes this, because Jesus took on flesh and our nature when he became a man 
And because he bore our sin at the cross, Jesus always understands what we're going through. That's what Tim was talking about a couple weeks ago or a month ago in Hebrews, that Jesus is able to sympathize with every weakness that we have as human beings. Why? Because he's a human being. He's gone through things that we've never had to go through, but without sin. One of the greatest things that we can introduce to someone if they ever tell us that they're experiencing some kind of gender incongruence, I know a savior who knows what you're going through. He's uniquely able to walk with you. He wants a relationship with you. One of my fears as a pastor is I think our culture hears at times, you gotta clean yourself up sexually before you come to Jesus. That's works righteousness. I better change before I get to Jesus. Nah. Grace. Next. Or even more, I'm gonna, I gotta move on. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? God cares so much about you as an individual and me as an individual, as an embodied person, that as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection and a relationship with him, God actually takes up residence in your very body. You are a walking, living, breathing God encounter. You bring Jesus with you wherever you go, wherever you live, work, play, or learn. Jesus is with you through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not ashamed. The Holy Spirit is not ashamed to enter into you as a human being, as a body. And the Holy Spirit is the only one who sticks closest to you while you go through the separation of death when your body goes on the ground and your spirit goes to be with Jesus. The Holy Spirit is with you that whole time. He's unembarrassed. He's unashamed. He loves your body. Because of this, One African-American writer, she's an African-American woman, seeing some of the things in the transgender movement that she also noticed in the civil rights movement about there were were light-skinned, lighter-skinned African-Americans who tried to, who sort of hated their darkness and tried to pass themselves off as being white, Anglo. She sees something similar in this, uh, that kind of self-hate in the transgender ideology and movement, and so she asks this really important question. Why don't we encourage people to love the body that they're in? We tell women to love their curves and love their age and love the skin that they're in, but we won't tell them and men to love the sex of their bodies. This is where we can speak. This is where we can believe that Jesus sees our bodies as something to be loved. So from a very young age, we're teaching children, God loves your body. When they start to discover that they have a penis, God loves you, and God loves your penis. He made it. And we don't need to be embarrassed to talk about things that God wasn't, wasn't embarrassed to create. We especially need to talk to women, young women, about their bodies, sensitively, to talk about the menstrual cycle is God's idea. Painful, frustrating, I don't know. Good. God made it good. And I mention that because there was a woman I didn't know who grew up a tomboy and the first time she got her period, she started to cry. 
What does this mean about my body's betraying me? Jesus cares about your body. He loves it. Good news for sexuality. I'm gonna, I'm gonna buzz through these two, last two, I'm sorry. Freud was wrong about sexuality. And this is a truth that we, that Jesus says, good news. What is he wrong about? You don't have to be fully human, or you don't have to have sex and express yourself sexually to be fully human. Jesus was the most fully human, human being in all existence, and he never had sex. And Jesus even says that sexuality is only temporary. It's only for a time. When we die and we are raised again, we're not gonna have sex in heaven. We're gonna be, be like the angels. We're not given in marriage. It's temporary. It's for a time. It's not ultimate. Now, of course, sex includes happiness and pleasure, but the good news of Jesus is that sex is bigger, bigger, and more inspiring than simply about pleasure. And one of the things that we get to recapture in our cultural context is a really beautiful, powerful, inspiring story, God's story of sex. And for the longest time, the church has been more concerned about the boundaries. Oh, don't do this, 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 don't do this. The boundaries are important. Jesus is about boundaries. Because he made sex for a relationship between a husband and wife and covenant love together. But we've got to tell the story of why that's the case. And God is telling that story in Scripture. And he's telling that story in Scripture with this little phrase here that Paul brings up in, uh, in chapter 6 about the two will become one flesh. It's like, do you not know that he who's joined with a prostitute becomes one body with her? And he taps into this storyline, the two will become one flesh. And what he means by that, there's a lot that I could go into here, but what he means by that is that God designed sex to, two, to bring two people together, a husband and wife together in a one lifetime covenant, a lifetime covenant together. And what we're doing right here, right now in our culture is like, we're, we're, we're getting married and we're talking about sex and we don't know, we don't know the picture on the front box of the puzzle pieces, uh, on the puzzle and so when we're dealing with sexuality and, and marriage and all these types of things, and even in Christian, in Christian marriages, we've got this 5,000-piece puzzle, puzzle picture that we're trying to put together with our sexuality, and we don't even know the picture to tell us what, that, what sexuality is supposed to look like in a marriage relationship. But God tells us what it's about. At a high level, God didn't create sex primarily to teach us about romantic love or passion or even procreation. All of those are important. And even unselfishness. He didn't teach us, he didn't give it us that to teach us about unselfishness. The larger vision that puts all the pieces together is this true kind of love that God loves us with and it's a covenant love. It's a covenant kind of love where he makes a promise that no matter what, I'm gonna love you through thick or thin till death to us part, but even in death we don't part from God. The story that we tell with our sexuality and the story that we tell well with a relationship between a husband and wife is a story of God's love. And we need to recapture the promise and the beauty and the strength 
of covenant love. God created sex for marriage and preserves sex for, reserves sex for marriage because of the beauty of covenant love. God created the sex to be the most tangible expression of the joy of fully giving oneself in covenant. It's the physical symbol of a lifelong covenant promise. Now the more, if we tap into the beauty and the power and the inspiration of God's story for sex, it gives us the power, it gives us the power for a woman in her mid-30s who's been addicted to pornography for, 30, for 10 years to say, I'm gonna give up pornography and I'm gonna tell some friends that I've been involved in pornography as well and I'm gonna follow Jesus and not be involved in pornography anymore. The story of Jesus, God's story of sex is so inspiring and needs to be recaptured in such a way that it helps a husband who's in the midst of a cold relationship with his wife, who's tempted to sleep with a coworker, to say, I'm gonna do the most important thing and I'm going to seek as much as I possibly can to the leadership and the power of the Holy Spirit to rekindle my relationship with my wife because God's covenant love is that powerful to me and beautiful. God's covenant love becomes so inspiring that it allows and empowers our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters in Christ to say, you know what, I'm going to remain single, celibate, and not be involved in a romantic relationship with someone of the, opposite, of the same sex as I am because Jesus' covenant love for me is so beautiful. I don't wanna violate it. It helps men who are engaged to guard their relationship. We're not gonna have sex before we're married because God's covenant love is so beautiful and it's made only to be expressed and to flourish. And where there is pain and difficulty and sex within marriage, we rely on the Spirit and we learn to follow Him because the promise isn't if, you, if, you, if you're pure, then you're gonna have a great sex life someday. You might still have pain and difficulty as we walk through learning how to love one another sexually in covenant relationship. Lastly, good news for our failures. Tim said last week, and this is so true, that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what's been done to us, God invites us in. Paul began this section with saying, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, what he means by that is that any of us who are adulterers, any of us who are idolaters, any of us who've stolen something, any of us who's lied ever, we are not, by definition, allowed into the kingdom of God. But then Paul says something so powerful as such were some of you. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. What's been done to us and what we've done that may have been of sexual nature, there is a unique kind of shame with that because we sin against our bodies. Jesus washes that away. By his death and resurrection, he washes that away. You were sanctified. In other words, you, because of Jesus and relationship with him, you belong to him and he loves you. He loves, exactly, he loves you exactly where you are right now. 
but he loves you so much that he's not going to leave you exactly where you are right now. He's going to change you. Justified. We're allowed into the kingdom because we have a right relationship with God because of what Jesus has done for us. And if Jesus has done all these things for us, will we please also listen to him when he talks into our bodies and our sexuality and will we believe him there? One of the things that is for us, I think, is just as followers of Jesus, is that to remember Sometimes we can think about like, oh, that's what I once was. And we forget what it was like to meet Jesus for the first time and to be changed by him. And so we can develop this kind of self-righteousness that looks at other people and says, well, you are really far from Jesus. And the reality is no one was more far from Jesus when I, than I was when I was far from Jesus. And not only that, we're all being changed. Nobody has a life that fully aligns with who Jesus is. That's why Paul's writing this letter. Even though they were washed, they were justified, they were sanctified, sanctified and justified, they still needed to be changed. And we all have unbelief in us. We all have wrong ideas about Jesus. We all have wrong ideas about our sexuality. We all have wrong ideas about our bodies. And they all have significant consequences. Are we going to let Jesus continue to change us as we invite others to find the one who told us everything that we ever did and he still loves us and he wants a relationship with us. I'm going to pray for us and then why don't you stand if you would. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to sing one last song together about coming to Jesus and what he promises to do in us. Holy Spirit, we entrust this time to you. We have surrendered all things to you, Jesus. We surrender our bodies to you because you are good and you will care for us. We surrender our sexuality to you because you are good and you will guide us and you will shape us and you will change us and you will align us to you. We give our failures to you because you are good. And you've died and you rose again in such a way that no matter our failures, we can inherit the kingdom of God. Thank you. Spirit be with us as we sing. Amen.